Conclusion This book does not have a very satisfying ending, and for a reason. The story of Gahnawage did not end in 1900. The settler invasion was not complete and did not conclude at that time. Neither did Gahnawage capitulate and disappear at that moment. Nor did the story end with the 1951 overhaul of the Indian Act and the 1969 federal attempt to abolish it, or the 1985 effort to eliminate gender discrimination in it. The story did not end in 1959 with the catastrophic construction of the St. Lawrence Seaway through Gahnawage, or with the military siege and invasion of Gahnawage during the 1990 Ghanisadage resistance, Oka Crisis. It also did not end in the year 2000 or in 2021 when this book was published. The story of the laws and the land is ongoing. Canadian efforts to destabilize and eliminate Indigenous nationhoods persist, as do the daily actions of Indigenous peoples to build their lives and nations. Using material from the DIA archives, this book shows the very specific ways in which the people of Gahnawage maintained laws that prioritized economic equality within the community and ensured that those with the least wealth had access to agricultural land and firewood. These laws were designed to limit both the individual accumulation of land as property and the exploitation of wood for commercial gain. The territory was collectively owned, and only within that framework did individuals have rights to land and resources. The values reflected in these laws were the patrimony of Rodinashuni understandings of territories as spaces that must be shared between peoples, like a dish with one spoon. Unlike those who built the Canadian nation, who concentrated primarily on the property rights of certain individuals, Gahnawage laws emphasize the good of the poorest and the common good. In practice, Gahnawage and Rodinashuni law surely had its own problems, but it is clear that the goals of Rodinashuni lawmakers were peace and good relationships, whereas the goals of colonial lawmakers tended to focus on protecting the rights of property holders, employing the rhetoric of freedom and equality. Although colonial invasions and occupations always involve violence of some kind, the colonial invasion in this book was not accomplished with weapons and soldiers. Nevertheless, this invasion had the genocidal goal of eliminating an indigenous nation, and the slow violence chronicled in these pages resulted in untold harm. Thus, the Laws and the Land is a micro-history that tells the larger story of the Canadian project to install settler governments and settler law as the only legitimate authority while simultaneously weakening and destroying Indigenous nations and their laws. For DIA officials, this campaign necessitated a level of hubris and chauvinism that would allow them to ignore and discount the humanity of Indigenous people. They frequently repeated racist stereotypes in their correspondence and could not be seen as listening to or respecting the indigenous people with whom they came in contact. Some were more sympathetic and kind than others, but none could stray too far from colonial dogma without damaging their own careers. The DIA never took responsibility for the harms it caused. Instead, it always blamed Gahnawage Hironu, 
and its agents took care to blame Indians when something did not live up to expectations. To accomplish the genocidal goals of enfranchising all Gahnawagya Hranu and breaking up the community, DIA officials believe they must first gain political control. To do so, the department sowed political and social division and took control of finances, education, membership, and economic development. It also undermined Gahnawage leaders and frequently passed legislation that empowered both itself and its agent. Its civilizing project was to transform indigenous people into Christian farmers and their lands into an agricultural landscape. It did not matter that Rodinasuni women had always been proud farmers or that their landscape was already an agricultural one. Deeply unsympathetic to Gahnawage's vernacular landscape of irregular lot shapes, shifting boundaries, gendered agricultural norms, and overlapping use rights, DIA officials intended to erase it all so that a new order could be built from scratch. The desired landscape, a grid of rectangular lots, would allow for the enfranchisement of everyone, the end of Gahnawage law, the creation of a commercial land market, and the breakup of the nation, a model that could be applied elsewhere. The DIA's imperial hubris and liberal ambitions, however, came up against Gahnawage resistance. Although many Gahnawage Hironu appeared to be dissatisfied with their own government during the 1870s and 1880s, especially since the DIA intentionally undermined the authority of the chiefs and Gahnawage law, almost everyone opposed the heavy-handed interference of the DIA, and almost no one wanted their landscape and society to be reorganized along the lines envisioned by the department. Many felt they had no choice except to cooperate, but some, such as Ohyungodu, simply refused. Others burned and removed survey stakes, sent petitions, and lied and withheld information, all of which led to cost overruns and delays. They also wrote editorials in Montreal newspapers to counter DIA rhetoric and used political connections to raise their concerns and embarrass the government in the House of Commons. Many of these courageous people probably paid a high price for their principled stands. Due to their geography and history, Gahnawage Hironu may have had more capacity for resistance than many other indigenous people at the time, but their options were still very limited. The DIA was also beset by internal problems that impeded its ability to accomplish its grand plans, and yet allowed it to do other kinds of damage. Its actions were poorly planned, subject to multiple agendas, and riddled with contradictions. Furthermore, it was vulnerable to shifts in public opinion and changes in federal government that could scuttle large projects or generate policy changes that could greatly affect Indigenous peoples. To visualize Canadian expansionist goals, to understand what elites wished the country to become, we need look no farther than the Dominion Land Survey on the Prairies, where the government's ambitions were largely realized. A massive grid of privatized agricultural properties owned almost entirely by white men. In Gahnawage, dogged opposition from Gahnawage Hironu prevented the Canadian government from achieving its most ambitious goals, but it did manage to attain significant political control. 
The conflicted, disorganized, and constrained nature of the DIA also played an important role in determining the outcomes of its actions. This is not to say that their inconsistent and ad hoc nature tended to benefit Indigenous communities. Quite the opposite. Because the DIA operated without real public scrutiny in relation to a constituency that was legally disenfranchised, its officials could often act outside the law without facing consequences. Departmental indecision and incompetence meant that Gahnawage leaders could not take action on important local issues, and Gahnawage Hironu were often left in limbo. The department asserted itself just enough to undermine Indigenous leaders, but not enough to protect the land and people from the effects of the leadership vacuum. In like manner, although the most radical elements of the Wallbank survey were not realized, it still facilitated the imposition of private property and the compilation of a membership list. Long-term outcomes include a complicated and unequal property regime that reflects neither the ideals of the Indian Act nor those of Gahnawage. The thorny issue of membership that continues to simmer and periodically explodes, and the unsettled question of leadership in which multiple forms of government, including band council and longhouses, vie for the support of the people. Though bloodied and bruised after generations of DIA interference and with a badly damaged territory, Gahnawagerhronu are still here. They could not prevent the invasion and its damage to their people and lands, but they did not assimilate and disappear as the DIA had planned. From the outside, Gahnawage could have the appearance of an ordinary Canadian or Quebec town, but it is anything but. Viewed from the air, the shape of the heavily forested Gahnawage territory contrasts sharply with the farms and suburbs of neighboring areas, mirroring the contrasting cultural and legal realities inside and outside the reserve. Similarly, the enclosure of Indigenous lands and the destruction of collective Indigenous identities across North America remain incomplete due to the steadfast resistance and refusal of Indigenous peoples. As I wrote this book, I was increasingly struck by the similarity between what I was reading in the colonial archives and what I read in the news. As I conducted archival research and learned with Gahnawagerhronu, I was shaken out of my unexamined core belief that settler colonialism is somehow a thing of the past and that conditions are now much better than they used to be. In fact, indigenous lands are still being unjustly taken, pillaged, and polluted. Indigenous families are still torn apart in ways that are unimaginable to most settlers, treaties are still broken, racism is still rampant, and even federal governments that seem friendly to Indigenous peoples are unable or unwilling to provide basic services that settlers take for granted. Of course, not everything is the same as it was, but it is clear to me that we are not living in a post-colonial era. Another insight I gained was that settler colonialism is not just something that happened in Gahnawage and other places out there. It is tempting as a scholar to pretend that I am merely an observer instead of an active participant in the historical process, but that's simply not true. The settler colonial frontier isn't just somewhere else. It is in my home, my family, my classroom, and in my own heart. 
Thus, as I think carefully about what it might take to decolonize Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples, I believe it begins with myself. I could write the best books and articles on the topic, but if I continue to live out settler colonial values in my daily life at home or at work, I continue to do harm. Rather than treating my daughter as my civilizing project, I can work toward respecting and nurturing her authentic self. Rather than coercing and manipulating my spouse, I can find ways to communicate my needs without fear. Rather than approaching my students from a place of knowing better, I can learn to hear their wisdom and experience. Rather than disrespecting other-than-human creatures and forgetting about my relationship to my surroundings, I can pay attention and develop reciprocal connections with them. And finally, rather than speaking to myself in a punishing and hateful way, very much in the spirit of colonial communications discussed in this book, I can learn to be gentler and kinder toward myself. As many wise teachers have tried to teach me, Everything is in relation to everything else, and the meaning of life is to strive for right relationships. This brings me full circle to the opening of this book, with its story about my relationship with Jonadah Dogul A. Brian Deer. He taught me that the most important thing is not to get everything right, but to be continually learning with an open heart and mind. My agenda as a scholar is to be more like that every day and to make my scholarship and my daily actions flow from there. Indigenous diplomacy has for centuries focused on building right relationships between peoples. Perhaps the most famous example is the Turo Wampum, a record of one of the oldest treaties between Rodinashuni and Europeans. The two rows, the parallel lines of purple wampum beads, represent two boats, the Rodinashoni canoe and the European ship, each embodying the laws and customs of its respective people. The boats travel down the same river, represented by a background of white beads, but they do not interfere with each other's course. It was this principle of non-interference and mutual respect, a long-standing feature of Indigenous settler relations before Confederation, that the Canadian nation abandoned in the 19th century. Similarly, the dish-with-one-spoon principle focuses on ways that peoples can live peacefully on the same land without harming each other. The Laws and the Land details the breakdown of this relationship, the uneven establishment of an asymmetrical power dynamic, and some of its cultural, political, and environmental consequences. Getting back to right relationships will not be easy, but I believe that settlers and settler governments need to become better listeners. We can put aside our agendas and learn how to speak with Indigenous people from our own ship without feeling the need to criticize, build, improve, cross over to, or sink theirs.